Section 17 of By the Marchers of Minus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. By the Marchers of Minus by Sir Charles G. D. Roberts. How Virado Obeyed the Black Abbey. Part 2. At the foot of the slope, where the derocious trail emerged from the woods, came into view the small figure of a child, running for life. In a second it came into the line of light. It was a little boy. His sturdy legs were all too short for the speed required of them. In one mitten fist he frantically clutched the handle of a small wooden bucket. His light curls streamed out behind his shoulders from under his woolen cap. And now Virado saw his little round face, the eyes wide with awful fear and hopeless appeal, fixed upon the lighted windows of home. At the sight of that childish agony, Jean Virado's heart came uncomfortably into his throat. He had never been at ease when he saw a child suffer. What can have scared the tot, he mused to himself. But even as he asked it, he was answered. Out from the darkness of the trail came a wolf, galloping low, muzzle down, tongue lolling from the fangs, and after him two more, close upon the lady's gaunt flanks. Verado did not fire. The child was in a line between his musket and the wolves. But he did not pause to weigh the consistency of his action. His throat aching with pity, he dashed down the slope, shouting to the child that he would save him. Upon the hope of help, the little fellow's strength all at once gave way. His knees failed him, and he fell headlong, face in the snow, and Verito ground. But at that great shout, the wolves had paused, wavered an instant. It was but an instant, and they sprang again to the attack, seeing a single foe before them. But that instant was enough. Virado was already between them and their quarry. Before they could leap upon him, he fired, and one sank, kicking on the snow. The fangs of the next were fairly at his throat, ere his long knife, driven upward with a tremendous short-arm stroke, went through the mad beast's gullet and reached the brain. But the heavy onrush at the same moment all but overbalanced him, and in the wrench to keep his feet he swung violently aside, still clinging to the knife hilt where it struck fast in his adversary's neck. That swing probably saved Virado, but the leap of the third wolf fell short. Its jaws clashed like a trap, but merely plowed a furrow in the flesh of his shoulder and gained no damage in grip. In the same second, the brute caught sight of the long form of Sokobi, loping down to the rescue and wheeling with a fierce snarl it fled for the woods. Before it had gone ten paces, the Indian's musket crashed, and a lean gray body, stretching on the gallop, suddenly doubled up into a shuddering heap of fur. Well done, my brother, panted Verido, shaking himself like a dog just from the water. Then he ran to pick up the boy, who still lay face downward, shaking and sobbing. There, there, don't be scared, sonny. They're all killed, he said gently in English, lifting the poor little figure. But at the sound of the kind voice, the sobs broke into violent crying. The child clung convulsively to his neck and hid his face in the comforting homespun bosom. 
There, there, I'll take you home, he went on soothingly, all forgetful of his grim errand. Oh, thank God you were in time. God bless you. God will bless you, sir, exclaimed a choking voice at his elbow. He turned, somewhat embarrassed by the clinging arms, and saw the young girl who had stood in the doorway. She was trembling so that she could scarcely stand up, and her face was ashen white. The light from the door, which stood wide open, shone full upon her, and for all her pallor, Birdo's fairest thought was that never before had he seen such a face. Smooth, heavy masses of fair hair, ruddy in the candlelight, were drawn low to either side of a very broad, low forehead, and half covered the small ears. The eyes, astonishingly large, and now wide with agitation, were set far apart, and seemed to veer though like pools of liquid darkness. The short upper lip and short, upturned chin made Virado think, even in that moment, of an old Venetian coin which he had taken in the way of trade one day at Louisbourg, and for its beauty had kept by him ever since. Jean Verdoux was more disturbed than he had been by the wolves. It was nothing, miss. They were only wolves, he stammered. Shall I carry the little fellow up to the house for you? And he started up the lighted slope with his burden. At the same time, however, he kept a sidelong gaze upon the girl who walked at his side. Oh, she cried again in a poignant voice, pressing her hands to her eyes as if she would shut out a vision of horror. If you had not come, if you had not come in time. Then she reached out her arms to the child. Come to me, Boise, come to me, she entreated. But the boy clung the tighter to Verito's neck and the young Acadian glowed with an absurd warmth of satisfaction at the preference. How did I let him go so far alone, and so late, she went on, reproaching herself with no tears, but hard, choking sobs. And the wolves, father always said there were no wolves in Nova Scotia. The hard winter, the deep snow so early, that's driven them in from over the neck, miss, spoke Virado. By this they had come to the house, Silently, the Indian stalked in after them, seated himself by the great open fire, and gazed into it with unwinking eyes. That child had by this time recovered himself somewhat, and stood upon his feet, releasing Virado from the solid burden of a sturdy lad of eight. But he kept close to his protector's side, and shivered if the latter moved a foot's length away from him. Playing with a rude wooden doll, near the hearth, sat a little flax-haired girl of five or six. Looking up, she smiled indulgently upon the visitors. Then her look changed to one of deep concern. Jumping to her feet, she ran over to Virado and seized his hand. Poor man, poor man, she cried earnestly. Oh, what bit you? Oh, the blood. Bewildered by his emotions and by the events which had brought him as a trusted protector into the household which he was sent to destroy. Jean Virado had not noticed his wound, but now he awoke to the burning throb of it. Instantly the tall girl was at his side, her eyes brimming with tears of self-reproach. All I had thought of has been Boise and myself, she cried. Forgive me. Sit here, sir. I must dress it for you. Oh, but your poor shoulder is so badly torn. Please sit down. But Virado was now awake. He saw for the first time in all its hideousness 
the work which had been set him. He shook at the thought of it. No, miss, he answered, growing white about the lips. It is nothing. We have far to go. We must go at once. And firmly he unclasped the child's fingers from the flap of his woolen capote. The girl's level brows went up in wonder and displeasure. You cannot go, sir, till I dress your wound. And gently, but with a certain positive authority, she pushed him toward the saddle. You cannot go till we have supper. You cannot go till my father comes, to thank you for saving the life of his only son. When father comes, he will keep you, to help us celebrate this happy Christmas, which but for you, and with a passionate gesture she covered her eyes again, nor trusted herself to say what would have been, but for him. Verido felt that the wound, a tearing gash, should be dressed, and her fingers were very soft and cool to the angry flush. He looked at Sokobi, but the savage sat like a statue, gazing into the fire. The young man yielded. He would go right afterward. At this moment, the steps of a heavy runner came up to the door. The door was dashed open. A big, ruddy man, light-haired, gray-eyed, frank of countenance, carrying a heavy pack, burst in. The pack fell by the door with a thud, and he sprang across the room to crush the boy to his heart. His father, instinct had told him the situation at once. Then he held out his hand to Feridou. God reward you, stranger, he exclaimed in a deep voice that thrilled with fervor. I see a bit of what's happened. I heard the shots. I seen the carcasses out there. And I reckon you've saved for me what's more in my life. Now tell me all about it, Margie, my girl. And he stopped, panting and hugely out of breath. It was nothing. It was all in the way of a day's hunt, interposed Viridou hastily. But the girl, Marjorie, breaking in indignantly, told the story as it was, and the boy, forsaking his father, emphasized it by running to cling again to Viridou's side. The big man's eyes were wet. He came and wrung Viridou's hand once more. Aye, he stopped with a gulp. I see just how it was, he cried. You can't thank a man that's done what you've done for me, this night, stranger. But, but if you ever want a friend, why, I'm John Brandt, and I'd give my right hand for you. I'd, Margie, my girl, make haste now and get supper. We're all hungry, I reckon, as sissy. And to hide his emotion, he snatched up the little girl with her wooden doll and began careering boisterously up and down the room. After a minute or two of this, he quieted down. I say, stranger, it was God himself that sent you, I allow, said he. But where in thunder did you come from? So in the nickest of time. Jean Verdoux could stand it no longer. This gratitude, trust, devotion were crushing him to the ground. He arose, and putting out his left hand in earnestness, he grasped the child's arm and held it tight, unconsciously, while he spoke. John Brandt, said he, stop this gratitude. I will not eat of your bread. I will leave this roof as soon as I have spoken. I do not deserve that you should bear to look upon me. Where did I come from? Not from God. From the devil. I came to murder. I was sent to destroy this house and all in it. Well, I'll be cast the big man, sitting down and staring, while anger, astonishment, and a sort of sick horror chased each other over his broad face.
Now Sokopi, as it chanced, understood English, though he could not speak it. At the first appearance of his passionate speech, he had turned, his eyes ablaze with scorn. As the young man went on, the Indian slipped noiselessly toward the door. No one heeded him. Over the big Englishman's shoulder, Verdu saw him open the door and vanish into the night. He had no wish to hinder that flight. He went on with his self-denunciation. Before morning, this house would have been ashes, you, a dead man, your children captives, had I done what I was sent to do, concluded Verdu, dropping his head, not daring to meet the look which he felt must be in Marjorie Brandt's eyes. There was a silence when he stopped, a silence that seemed to overtop and bear him down. Then he saw that the girl had come to his side, was standing close by him. You didn't know, she said softly. You came to bring us death, but you brought us life and shed your own blood for a stranger child. Right you are, Margie, my girl, exclaimed the big man, springing up yet once more to wring the hand that had saved his son. Cheer up, man. Don't look so down. Your heart's in the right place. What care I for all you thought you was going to do? You're the man in all the world for me, that's what. You've given me my boy. Come, come, suffer, my girl. Shall we starve on Christmas Eve? Where's your engine? He didn't see it just as I did, answered Berardo. He's gone. Best place for him, said John Brandt heartily. He'd have been dreadfully in the way for Christmas, said Marjorie, laughing into Birdo's eyes. End of section 17